Oh, good morning. Glad to see you all. Um, if you're new here, really glad you're here. Uh, happy to have you. And let me just catch you up to speed on what we've been doing. We've been teaching through this series. That just means it takes us more than one week. Uh, looking at the Bible, particularly at the beginning of the Bible, the, the, the story of Genesis. That's the first uh, book of the Bible. Um, and here's kind of the, the idea behind Genesis. It actually literally means the origins or the beginning of something. And so we've just been trying to figure out where all this got started, how we got here, all those kind of things. And so we're in week three. Won't get to cover too much from the first two weeks. So I just recommend if you want to catch up, clcfamily.church. Um, and you'll get to uh, go to, uh, listen to the sermons, watch the sermons, whatever, whatever you like to do there. But here's kind of the big ideas between the, the first two weeks. So the first week is kind of going, well, how in the world do we all get here? By that I mean everything from the earth to the universe to the people in it to the animals, all those things. And uh, Genesis chapter 1 gives us uh, kind of an idea or an understanding of how we all arrived here. And um, for a lot of people, that's a, a pretty big hang up. And I just recommend you listen to the sermon. But here's kind of the, the big part of it. And here's, here's what we can all kind of conclude, whether you come from a science background, a sociological background, or whatever background you come from. There was, no matter how you kind of shape it, even if we go, here's kind of the theory, there were a couple things that kind of bumped together, we call it Big Bang, whatever it is, that kind of set the world into motion, so whether or not you have some kind of evolutionary belief on how we got here, um, almost everything kind of begins with this idea of these two things colliding together. And no matter how bright you are, how much science you know, or how much you understand physics, whatever that is, at that level, when those two things, if that's what we think happened, bump together, there still has to be a pretty interesting conclusion that something or nothing created something. So where did these two things come from? And um, the brightest minds all kind of shrug their shoulders and go, we're not really sure how nothing becomes something, but obviously nothing became something because here we are. And, um, so what I would just argue and offer, and I think it's actually pretty plausible and Basically, the best understanding we have is if there was nothing and there was something, something had to create that, which is where this idea of some kind of intelligent designer would show up. Even uh, Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawking, some of these bright minds would even say there would have to have been the perfect moment and the perfect atmosphere with exactly the right thing chosen. That's the words they would use to make this happen. By the word chosen, what we just argue is a, to, in order to choose, you have to have a chooser. And so, kind of the, the foundation that we'd go, there was nothing and then there was something. And our best explanation for that is something, uh, some kind of creator, right? Some kind of intelligent designer. And so once you get there for a week one of going, okay, if there is an cr- intelligent designer who uh, designed, a creator who creates, we have to ask the question, well, why in the world would a creator create, Right. Uh, good, uh, good question, I think. And here's uh, some of the possible explanations. One, you think about an artist. Uh, why would an artist create? Well, part of it is they would say hardwired in them is a desire to create, design, to paint, create beauty, whatever that is. And go, got to figure out where that hardwiring comes from. But even beyond that, an artist would say they created something uh, for you to marvel at it, to be impressed by it. Uh, uh, the Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, and in the Psalms, it actually talks about how he, those heavens and earth declare his glory, meaning there's something about creation that shows us how big he is, so there's something interesting there to think maybe creator creates to be kind of marveled at. It's more nuanced than that. Another reason the creator would create would be because um, the creator wants you to enjoy something, uh, art, architecture, whatever it is. They'd actually want the people kind of experiencing it to enjoy it. So something else to think about God there is, one, he's hardwired to create. Two, he wants us to be pretty impressed with it. Three, he wants us to enjoy it. But even beyond all that, it's a little different than how we think about human beings being created. And the best understanding we have of that is 
Some of us have had the opportunity to participate in creating a, a human being. And for those of us as parents, the reason we kind of leaned into that route is not because we thought life would be easier, right? Or that they would pay for us to go to a retirement home one day. You created life in that sense because it, in some sense you wanted to actually enjoy it and be in relationship with it, right? So the crazy thing about it is not only does a creator create so you would enjoy creation, but creator creates so he can enjoy creation. And so the Bible says that we were created in God's image and his likeness. And the major objective was not just for him to be worshiped, but also for him to be in relationship with human beings. So foundationally over the last two weeks, kind of figured out how we all got here, both the planet and how life is sustained. Uh, Particularly all of us are here as a result of um, male and female relationships in some sense that reproduce to get us to this point. And so that's just as far as we've gotten. Now we're going, okay, if creator created us to be in relationship with him and enjoy us, then why don't we feel like we're in a relationship with him, right? And that's what we'll be discussing today. And there's lots to think about there. Um, One thing I just offer is um, there are many people that you know that you don't want to be in relationship with, right? I mean, that's not a creator thing. You have people in your life, uh, old friends, you know, relatives, whatever, that you go, I don't really want to be in a relationship with them. And you would say, the reason being is they're not very fun to be in a relationship with, right? I mean, I don't know any people who'd want to be in a relationship, like any kind of friendship with Adolf Hitler, right? You think of mass murderers, and you think of there is something about what happens in our world that creates it some, some kind of um, chasm or separation between us and, and uh, other people. And uh, that would probably offer some kind of insight to maybe there's something about the way we would be in a relationship with God that would make him not want to be in a relationship with us. We've got to just sort through that. And, which then leads to another part of us going, well, if you say God makes people in his image and likeness, does that mean he created Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, the mass murderer who walked into the movie theater, the school? Did, did God create them in his image and likeness? And if that's the case, is that what he wants people to be like? Or did something go wrong and... What we're going to see today is a lot went wrong, and we're going to get to sort through all that together. And so here's kind of the premise. I want you to understand this with me. Is when we think about um, behavior, okay, when we think about what someone does, who they are, particularly evil, uh, Adolf Hitler would come to mind there, right? It, when we think about them, we don't say we don't like him because he had a funny mustache, right? It's not that. It actually, the reason we have trouble with him and others is not because of what they look like, or who their parents were, or what color their skin was. The reason we have problems with some of these people is because of the things that they do. So a lot of how we define people is by their, we'd call it this, behavior, right? So you got behavior, which here's another word for it, actions, right? And we judge others by uh, their actions. We judge ourselves by our intent, something interesting there. But when we define people and our experience around them, it has everything to do with their behavior. And so we go, okay, let's think about Adolf Hitler. God made him in his image, and now we got this really horrific human being that God created him that way. And no, people would say, that's not exactly what happened. Adolf Hitler was the way that he was because he had some really messed up beliefs, right? Uh, that there are certain color skin, certain pedigrees, certain, you know, origins were better than others, and therefore he had this, this dream of an Aryan nation so broken, so messed up, and literally killed millions of people that stood in the way of that. Right? That was not just a behavior, but a really, really crazy belief system. And what psychologists will say, and what I think all of us understand sociologically, is that our beliefs are actually developed uh, by a very specific thing, and it's our thoughts. So when you look at really racist people, what you'll discover is they, uh, a lot of times, grew up in very racist homes where they were 
what, what infiltrated their brain were some really, really bad thoughts. Or they had some kind of experience early on that gave them an understanding of what they would think about. And the more you think about something, the more your beliefs are kind of shored up in that. And so um, the way that behavior actually plays out in our life for all of us is that we have certain thoughts. We think about them long enough. They become beliefs. Once they become beliefs, and they actually create some kind of behavior in us. Uh, an example would be, I don't know, maybe an eating disorder. Right? Uh, there are lots of different examples, but a very simple one would go, okay, at some point, someone had a thought of what their body image should look like. Right? No judgment there. Just there's a certain way by which life is uh, more valued, or there's a way by which life would be better based on the image of what they look like. Right? And so they have this thought and understanding that value somewhere comes from that, whatever that is, or uh, pleasure comes from that, or uh, performance, whatever it is. There's this way by which uh, in our mind we have this understanding of what our body should look like. And then when we look in the mirror, that image that we are thinking in our head doesn't match up to what we see in the mirror, whether that's literal or, you know, philosophical, whatever that is. And what happens is you think about it long enough, there becomes this certain belief that you must not, you must look a certain way, weigh a certain amount, wear certain clothes, whatever that is, to make you fit in the category of valuable. So as a result of those think, that thinking and that belief, now all of a sudden your behavior changes. You eat less. You only eat certain foods. You only do certain things, right? So in these things, what happens is starts with your thoughts, then it becomes rooted in your beliefs, and then once it gets to your beliefs, then you start behaving that way. So even when you think about the Bible, it talks about this idea of repentance. Um, scriptures say in the New Testament, John the Baptist shows up and is preparing people for Jesus to be the Savior of the world. And what he says, it's really interesting, he says, repent. For the kingdom of God is near. Now, that means we're close. It's the, the kingdom that God wants us to experience and live in is close. We're almost there. But that word repent literally means to change the way that you think. So when you change the way you think, all of a sudden your beliefs change, and then all of a sudden your behavior changes. In Romans 12, it says, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's something about changing our thinking, which changes our beliefs, which changes our behavior. All the reason I'm very interested in counseling while we help start the New London Counseling Center because there's something about trying to figure out our thoughts. But it's a little bit more nuanced than that in terms of, okay, let's figure out our behavior. We're going to talk about why our behavior is the way it is today. But it is a little bit more nuanced. And there's this interesting thing real quick. I'll talk to you about it and then we'll jump in the scriptures called attachment theory. Okay? Here's what attachment theory is. It's this way by which um, human beings find their security in our world. Okay? Um, the, the idea is it uh, starts maybe prenatally in, the, in utero, but then definitely in that first several months of life, there is this process. And the process is a child would have a need, right? They have a need here, right? And then that need is met, right? So if a child has a need, they're hungry, they get fed, they're cold, they get uh, a blanket, they need comfort, they're comforted. And so then what happens? A child has another need, and then it gets met, right? And this pattern over and over again, a child has a need, it gets met, child has a need, it gets met. You see this? This creates a very a healthy level of what we would refer to as attachment or identity. Um, a couple weeks back, going through foster parent training, and they showed us this really messed up video. And um, just a little kid, maybe two, three months old, old enough to coo. Some of you like that noise. That, I don't like that noise because it just means they're going to cry later and wake you up in the middle of the night. But you know, ooh, goo, 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 right? And the way that the interaction was happening is um, mom or 
or some adult female figure, but I think it was mom, was actually interacting with her child. She was going, goo, 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 and he was going, hee, 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 right? Got the dimples, all happy. You've seen the experience, right? So they were doing that over and over again. They're videotaping it. And then they did something interesting, so messed up. The mom would get just a straight face, not stop interacting, just not interact in the same way that, the, that she was before. And within seconds, I mean 10, 12 seconds, all of a sudden that kid would have that same face. And then the mom would look at her phone or mom would look away. And this child, I mean, I'm talking 15 seconds in, a couple months old, would be so distressed. First it'd get fidgety. You follow? And then it would get uh, louder and louder and cry and cry and cry until this mom would come back. And the minute the mom came back and went, goo, 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 the baby's laughing again. You see the picture? And what they're showing is there's this weird thing that a child has this great need early on to be connected. They have a need when it's met, whether that's attention, interaction, whatever that is. And over and over again, the more often this pattern continues, the healthier a, a, a person is in their attachment. Now, when you look at this attachment theory that started in the 60s as they started considering this, they started um, uh, matching this attachment theory up to a couple of different relationships. First, uh, romantically. And they uh, can argue and show that the same pattern of attachment and connection happens within a marriage. So you have a need, it gets met. You have a need, it gets met. And as this pattern continues, every time there's a larger, better bond, right? And now, what's even more interesting, in the 90s, they started studying this attachment theory as it relates to criminology. And they can show folks who have a hard time attaching. You know, we don't and even, through, you know, a period of time, whether that's growing up in foster system, an orphanage, whatever it is, the level of um, expectation that kiddos who have a hard time attaching and to, and I would say causation, not just correlation, to the amount of crime and domestic violence and all sorts of different, you know, aggressive crimes, the amount was highly increased as a result to not having this attachment. So we go, there's something pretty interesting about not being able to be attached. So kid has a thought, um, I am loved, I'm cared for, I'm supported, early on, month old, right? They wouldn't be able to articulate that, but they uh, had the desire to be comforted, and then all of a sudden, these things aren't being met, and now it's starting to define some new beliefs for this kid. This kid doesn't deserve to be comforted, that God must not be good, or that the only way you get attention is by acting out, or the only way you get attention is by being aggressive. And so while this is more generalized, there is something about how we see our behaviors that are being formed long before we get the age of one or walking or running. And it has a lot to do with what our thoughts are. Now, as we look at this, what you're going to see, that and, um, the way by which our world plays out in Genesis chapter 3 walks us right through this and shows us how we get to some pretty messy behaviors pretty quick. So in Genesis chapter 3, we're just going to make some observations and read through it. Very happy about that. My uh, preference in teaching would be read a verse or two, talk about it, read a verse or two, and talk about it. We get to get back into that today. So that's what's going to happen in Genesis chapter 3. Now, one last observation I'll make or a statement I'll make before we jump in and the, the writer of this is a guy named Moses, okay? Really big in the Jewish world. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the first five books of the Torah, the Jewish Bible, and, and the Christian Bible, the Old Testament. They're all written by Moses. And what we would argue and say is that God, through the Holy Spirit, gives them this information, which is pretty neat because either this is true, which would make sense because the intuition we're about to see is amazing in this, in this passage. So either, either God is writing this, which, which I would argue he is, or Moses 
is brilliant for what he's about to show you and how the human psyche works. So in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 1. Uh, last week we finished in Genesis 2, I think it was verse 25, and that last verse said, in Adam and Eve, God said it was good. So there's man, woman, everything is good. And it says they were naked, or if you're from the south like I am, they're naked, naked, N-E-K-K-I-D, naked, and felt no shame. Very important. Last time in human history where no one on the planet felt shame, now we are in a room with a couple hundred people, and all of us have it. All of us, all the time. We all have some shame. And so this is the last time in human history that's the case, where there was no shame. Every bit of their attachment and connection was with God. They were not detached, and everything was perfect. And now you're about to see how it all falls apart. So, uh, worth your time, I think. So here goes Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And it says this, Genesis 3, 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So what you're going to see here is God created everything. And then in this picture, the serpent, which represents Satan, that's a fallen angel who says, God, I think I can do a better job than you can. We'll talk more about that later. Shows up and is about to have a conversation with man and woman. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So not a Christian, you have a lot of thoughts about this first verse, right? If you are a Christian, you still have a lot of thoughts about this first verse. What's interesting about all that is what's happening here are the same thoughts that we have. Let me highlight one word there. You see it? Did God really say? See that word really there? Literally, even in the Hebrew, means like indeed. It's a sarcastic term. It's literally a sarcastic term. It is, here shows up in Genesis chapter 3, it's snarky. It's snarky. By snarky, I mean like if you've seen those shows where they show up to the gala, to the Emmys, to the Grammys, whatever, and there's literally people, you think of Joan Rivers and others, who would sit there with their microphones and they would offer snarky comments about what people were wearing. You know what I'm talking about? You like those shows. Don't pretend, right? And you have your own judgments about that. But the interesting thing about snarky, it's different than just regular humor. Regular humor is we laugh at each other and we laugh at ourselves. You say, yep, me and you, we can laugh at ourselves. We're broken, ha, ha, ha. Snarky is you sit up in this nice little pedestal and you make observations about the rest of the world being broken, just not you, right? So here's what's happening here. Literally, this serpent is going, did God really say that? You know, sometimes like my son, he's uh, 10 now and he doesn't think I'm cool anymore. Just yesterday, Sophie, my five-year-old, she literally found the exact same shorts and exact same shirt I had on and she put it on too just so we can match because she's a good daughter, Right? My son, well, actually, if we all have the same similar shoes, same color, he will literally ask me to change my shoes, right? He just doesn't think I'm cool at all. So I just, like, tickle him, and I'm like, goo, 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 guess who loves you? Your daddy does. And he's going, he goes, this is what he does every time. He goes, really, dad? Really? You understand that term, really? Like, that's literally him calling me an idiot, right? Dad, you're such an idiot. He wouldn't say that. He would just use the word, really? Really, dad? And this literally is how the Bible starts. This serpent says to Adam and Eve, is that really what God said? You see, it's snark. It's the same thing you're thinking. As you're reading this, you're going, really, God? A man and a woman and a piece of fruit hanging on a tree and a snake? That's how the Bible starts? Really? It sounds like a little bit of like a puppet show. Really, God? And here's what you're really saying there. I'll say it for you because I'm thinking it, right? I could write a better story than this, God. I mean, if you're going to create a way for the whole world to fall, I understand snakes are creepy. Keep them away from me. By the way, I don't want to see a picture of them. I don't want to see your snake skin. I don't even want to see you in boots that have something to look like snakes. They're gross. All of them are, right? But anyway, in this you're going, really, God? And so what Satan does here is he actually appeals to this very thing in all of us. Where we're not saying it's not true. We're just saying it's silly. Right? Really? Okay, Adam, Eve. This is what he's saying. 
Did God really, are you telling me he really told you you can have everything else except for that one piece of fruit? Really, that's his plan? Did he not know you'd eat it? Really, this is what he wants? Wait, wait, tell me this again. It's a serpent. Really, you see it? Like there's, what's happening here from the very beginning, long before anything's going to change in any behavior, we're just getting right in the middle of these weird thoughts. Right, this, oh my goodness, this is a ridiculous story. In fact, as I think about going to college, or uh, some of you going off to college, or kind of where that transition in faith happened, I became a Christian early on. My, my parents were Christians. We grew up in a Christian church. By second grade, I didn't want to go to hell, so I came down front, got baptized. But then by seventh grade, it became a little bit more real to me. Okay, God, you're real, all that kind of stuff. And uh, by the time I was a junior in high school, I thought God wanted, or senior in high school, I thought God wanted my future, which meant I think he wanted me to be a pastor. So I was kind of leaning into that. But then, um, I don't know, maybe my sophomore year, when people would ask me what it, I wanted to be when I grow up or what I was studying, and I go, I think I'll be a pastor. You know what the response was? Really? <laughs> really? That's what you want to do with your life? Right? You see, it wasn't like this great ontological argument of why I shouldn't believe in God. And that's what a lot of our experiences are. That's not saying they're not out there. I'm just saying for every 99 that are uh, with this snarky approach, maybe there's one from the logical and reasonable side. But like it's kind of like going, hey, hey, you want me to pray for you on, on whatever your message board or chat board is? What are the comments underneath it? Really? You're going to talk to your fairy tale God? Really? You believe in this higher power? You see, there's this weird sense that what starts beating at us is this really statement is, really, that's what you believe? Really, you need your magical God to fix things for you? Oh, you need someone to forgive you? Really, you need forgiveness because you're so broken? Whatever those things are. It's just a secret thing. Well, all of a sudden, coming underneath it, that's underwritten in our entire culture is the snark. And this is literally how it begins in terms of the temptation. Satan going, really, really, that's the fruit? You see, there's this pattern where it actually is just happening in our atmosphere where someone just kind of makes a little bit of fun, pokes fun at God, which then, see this, even with Satan, he's not saying God's not real. He's just saying, really, that's who you worship? A God who dangles a piece of fruit in front of you? So it starts with this, really, really. So this starts with the thoughts. I haven't got to the beliefs yet. And it continues. Watch what happens next. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, really? <laughs> this lady's talking to a snake. Really, you know? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Really, there's some fruit that if you touch, you'll die. Really? You see, like it's just, just un, it's in, in our own heads. We're like, is this really the story that we're telling our kids? This is the story you want our kids to believe? That there's some magical fruit that kills you? Right? Isn't that like Snow White or something like that? Like are we just sharing another Disney fairy tale? Really? You see it? And so watch what, watch what the serpent does. Verse 4. You will not certainly die. <laughs> Again, snark. Really, God says you're going to die. Really, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, and now all of a sudden, now that he has this foundation of making us all think this is a silly story, I can't believe I believe this. I can't even talk about it out loud. I think God actually said that. I can't believe it, right? Now he's going to infiltrate this next layer. Watch this. He won't die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows, again, God's real here, that you will when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he goes, hey, hey, listen, listen. Let me tell you, let me tell you why God doesn't want you to eat it. Because God's a little bit needy and he needs you to be God. And if, he, if you don't pay attention to him, he's all lonely and no one will be interested in him. He's like that insecure stepfather or daddy or mommy or whatever it is. God's just really needy. And he needs to lord those rules over you because that's how he feels power. He's like that bad boss you have, 
right? Like, oh, he doesn't want you to go in the storage closet because he doesn't want you to know there's actually nothing back there, right? Or he's like the Wizard of Oz. He doesn't want you to see behind the curtain because he's just this tiny man, right? You just hear this whisper. And so what, what the enemy's saying right now, Satan's saying right now, he's going, really? Here's what's going on. God doesn't want you to eat it because that's the only reason he's God because he gets to eat it. If you get to eat it too, you'd also be God and we'd all be our own gods, Right, which is just that same whisper in our head now. In other words, he's saying, you see, you think that you have this need and that God's going to meet that need by you following the rules. There's no God that's going to meet your need. The only thing you need to do is take control and power of your own life and eat fruit. You don't need any attachment. You just go do your own thing. In other words, what he's saying right here is you should just be your own God. Right? And so what starts to happen is these thoughts and they'll change these beliefs that God is not that good. You see, foundationally, let me just tell you how it works for us as Christians, or at least me, I'm guessing it's the same for you. My big issue is not whether or not God's real. I think he's real. I think you can look out in the world, and I can just make those deductions based on just the universe. And my biggest issue is not thinking I, thinking I can fix myself. I don't even think I can fix myself. I understand that I probably need a Savior to fix me. Those aren't my issues. I've come to the conclusion that there's probably a God that exists who wants to be in a relationship with me, and I am not good enough on my own to be in a relationship with him. I get that. What my foundational issue is, I just don't always think God's fun. And I think sometimes he tells me to do things just because I get, like he knows better in some way. But I am confident at times that my way is better than God's way. And down my path, there's more joy and pleasure than down God's path. Like it's broken. And I know it's not true. But at the, at the base level, what I think sometimes is I can trust myself more than I can trust God. And probably you do it as well. Really, God doesn't want us to have premarital sex? Like it really matters. Really, God wants me to give 10% or whatever that number is to the church? I'd rather have a nice car. Whatever those things are, right? There's this idea that why would we trust God when we're not really so confident that what's at the end of that road is really that worthwhile, right? Is it really worth changing my lifestyle, changing all those things for this God when things are going pretty well for me? In other words, what I'm saying is I'm not really sure that God's going to do as good a job Lord, being Lord of my life as I am being Lord of my life. Let me give you a really clear example. It's just anxiety. Here's what anxiety is for me, which is just a normal part of my life. Anxiety is me saying to God, I'm not trusting, I don't trust that you're going to work it out in the way that I would like for you to work it out. So what do I do? I come up with my own plans. I come up with my own schemes. And so really what Satan is saying here is going, look, he doesn't want you to eat the tree uh, from the fruit because then you'll realize that you can actually do all those things yourself and you won't need this fairy tale God. Right? And so there's this, this belief system starts to change. We're going, okay, yeah, it is kind of a silly story, isn't it? Like a serpent, fruit. Why in the world would he dangle the fruit anyway? That doesn't even make sense to me. That, that makes sense. God isn't very good at this. Maybe I should just take control of my own life again. Right? And so this starts to sneak in until finally this belief system. No, none of us will say it out loud. But what's underwritten in our life is we are not so confident that following God's rules will be that fun or that enjoyable. And so that's the struggle that we walk in. So we go, okay, God, we have this need. But since we don't think you're going to meet it, we're just going to be our own detached self. And by the way, that's where psychopathy uh, and uh, sociopaths, all that stuff comes from this idea that people look outside themselves to have their needs met and can't find them. So they come up with all their own conclusions to meet their own needs. So this idea is they detach themselves. They disassociate themselves from the rest of the world. And so we see it all over our world, and yet this is exactly what we do to God and go, okay, I understand you're supposed to meet your, my needs, but I don't think you're going to meet them the way I want to. So I'll just create my own little system over here where I'll be my own God and Lord over my own life. And so that's the belief system that starts to create in for Adam and Eve, right? And so watch what happens next. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it, uh, she took some and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So all of a sudden, we've been working through these thoughts. Really, that's God's story, our beliefs, okay? Maybe God just doesn't want me to do it because he didn't want me to have any fun. And all of a sudden, we're going to go chase after it ourselves to figure it out, right? And so you go, well, I mean, what should have happened is God should have just told them what should have happened he, uh, ahead of time so they wouldn't have done it. He says, don't eat from the tree. You'll surely die. He should have explained to them what that death meant, meaning disconnected from life, bad for their kids, bad for their grandkids. He should have walked all that through the pattern. They're like, we don't even know what grandkids are yet, right? So, but it shouldn't even just explain all that kind of like in, um, what is it, uh, the Scrooge movie where, you know, these ghosts of Christmas past and future come and kind of show you what life's going to be like. And then all of a sudden there's all this life transformation as a result. You're going, well, that's what God should have done. He should have ahead of time given them a picture of how broken it was so they wouldn't have made that decision, right? That would make sense to us. But you see, here's the weird thing if we, we, we follow that path. And it's not that we're actually obeying God. We're just doing a cost-benefit analysis. We're just saying, okay, God, if you perform correctly in our future, just show me what that is, then I'll follow you now. But you understand, that makes God not God. That makes you God, and that makes him servant, when you go, God, if you'll show me exactly how this will work out, and then I can determine whether or not your plan is good or not, then I'll, you understand, like, then I'll follow it. That's not God being Lord. That's not God being boss. That's just you being boss and telling God what he should do to help you follow him in the way that you are willing to. So in all this stuff, all of a sudden you see all these changes, and Adam and Eve, they start to eat the food. And all because of this piece of fruit hanging on a tree. You're going, really? Piece of fruit on a tree gets us all in this mess, something dangling on a tree messed up the whole world, right? So let's continue. Then, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, right? So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So all of a sudden, they look up, and they're going, oh no, we're naked. And the next thing they do is they throw together some clothes. You see this really interesting, really think it's important for you to point out because I'm just telling you, Moses, God, they just brighten us and understand all this works. So the first things that happen is they realize they're naked. We don't know why that's so messy. What we understand in the scriptures is that word naked means to be vulnerable and broken. Uh, vulnerable and broken. And so all of a sudden they realize there's something wrong. All of a sudden they're going, oh gosh, he's looking at me funny. Why is he staring at that? Stop staring at that. Whatever that is. And so they start covering themselves, covering up the warts, all this stuff. And so they sew fig leaves together. That's what we know happened, right? And you go, that's weird, but we also can acknowledge here we are hundreds of years later and nakedness still makes us really uncomfortable, right? It's just a weird part of our life and it should be, you know, at this point, just really, really part of it. And so this is what we see here. So the first thing they do is cover it up. Pretend like it didn't happen. Don't look there. Just nobody say anything. Just cover up. Keep going about your day. Just keep going, right? Now watch what happens next. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. Really, really sad verse. That word walking shows up in a couple of different places in the Old Testament. One of the places in particular it shows up is with David and Jonathan. And it says they walked together, meaning they were in friendship and they were companions. So this is, this is that picture that God used to take evening strolls with Adam and Eve in the garden. I mean, this is a beautiful thing. And so this is the first time that stops happening. And watch what happens instead. Walk in the garden to cool the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So the first thing that happens, and it happens anything, think about your kiddos, think about your own life. The very first thing that happens when you do something wrong and you realize it is first you try to cover it up. Pretend like it didn't happen. Cover it up, right? Fix the lamp, glue it back together, whatever it is. When that doesn't happen, what do you do? You just hide it, hide it. So the next thing that happens with any kind of behavior, the first thing you do is pretend like it didn't happen. Oh gosh, it didn't happen. Erase the, the, you know, the, the 
search history, whatever it is, pretend like it didn't happen. And then the next thing you do when someone really wants to confront you, you flee, you hide, you do whatever it is, and now you hide, right? So with any kind of behavior, first thing you do is cover up. The next thing you know, they're hiding from God, which is kind of weird. He's really good at hiding go seek since he sees everything. But watch what happens here. Really, really interesting. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man. Where are you? This is really interesting. This is, uh, we talked about it a good bit. Got to understand this. This is not because God doesn't know. He's not like, hey, Jesus, get down there. We lost our kids. Like, there's none of that going on. They're not like, running around Macy's going, where are you, kids? And they're hi- hiding in the rounders like, ah, oh, we should have used the leash or whatever it is. They look ridiculous, but they sure work or whatever that is, right? He's not, he's not, he hasn't lost them. Like, he's not overwhelmed by not knowing where Adam and Eve are. He knows everything. So he's not worried about that. And you go, well, why in the world is he asking this then? Really important. He's not asking for his answer. He's asking for them to answer, right? He's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking because they don't know. Which in any kind of psychology, you would even see this, kind of the foundational piece is going, okay, what's going on? Like, can you just establish where you are? Like, can we just pause for a second and you do some self-reflection and get some awareness about what's going on in your life? So in this moment, he's literally telling Adam and Eve to pause and go, hey, guys, you got this new behavior, right? You're just hiding somewhere. Have you thought about why you're hiding? In other words, he's trying to get them to think about their beliefs and their thoughts. So very gracious of God. He's not reprimanding them. He's not punishing them. In this moment, he's just asking them to pause and reflect. And watch what happens. Verse 10. Adam does a little bit of uh, self-reflection. Gets, not a lot, but he says, He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, so I was naked. I'm afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So the only belief we know is all of a sudden, Adam's fearful. This is new. This is a new belief system. By the way, this is the one that controls just about every relationship and every piece of communication we have. The way we respond to people, all those things, is this result of fear. And so we see this fear shows up. And Adam was actually saying the reason he is fearful is because he's naked. All of a sudden, he has this new thing he's not sure what to do with. And so his only solution was to hide. So he's going, I had these thoughts. I realized I was naked. That made me have this belief that I'm now afraid of something. And so now I have a behavior which I'm now hiding. First you cover up, then you hide. Now watch what God does here. Really important, verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Again, God knows all this stuff. He's not asking for his own insight. He's asking for Adam and Eve to pause. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So you go, why does he ask this? Does he not know the answer to this question too? Of course he does. So this isn't for his sake. This is for Adam's sake. And he goes, hey, Adam, let's just be honest about what's going on here. You see what this is? This is God giving Adam the opportunity to take personal responsibility. Hey, Adam, can you just go ahead and own it? Who told you this? Could you just be really clear about what happened? Could for a moment, you just accept responsibility that you tried to meet your own needs when you couldn't. For just a moment, could you just pause and in this moment acknowledge that something went wrong because of your behavior, nobody else's? Now watch what Adam does here. So amazing. The man said, He doesn't tell him what happened. He just says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. You see this? Literally, the very first response in Scripture to any brokenness is a man throwing the woman underneath the bus. So in other words, here, take her. I want a new one. Right? I mean, this is so funny and so sad at the same time. Literally, this is what he does. This is really important because you see, an undefined sin is this. Sin is us putting ourselves in God's place. Right? No, God, we don't trust you with our value, so we'll lie about our weight so we'll feel more valuable. No, God, we don't trust you with our future, so we'll lie to our spouse about that thing so she won't find out. Whatever that is, right? Uh, at, at its base level, sin is uh, uh, trusting ourselves over God, right? Putting ourselves in God's place. But there's always a ramification for that sin, and here's the second part of sin. 
sin always distorts things to now where we see other people as a means to our pleasure, our safety, or our gain. You see what he does here? He goes, I can't be in trouble. Here's the wife. In this moment, this is so broken. You see it play out in all sorts of different ways, in, mu- in like horrific ways, where we see other people as a means to our pleasure or our protection. Now, all of a sudden, when you think about trafficking, when you think about slavery, we literally have now, as a result of this broken, flawed system, go, my job is to protect me, and therefore I believe I should use whatever means necessary to protect me and give me joy. If I am the Lord of my life and I am God, my chief end is to find pleasure, and therefore everyone else around me exists for that end. Right? Even Adolf Hitler going, I believe that I'm supposed to lead this master race and everything else you know, I should be supplied for that end. In this moment, you see the first time that one person objectifies another person and leverages them for his gain. So he goes, not me. It's the woman. You can have her. I'll take a new one. Right? That's literally what happens here in this first moment. So the first thing you do is you cover up. Second thing you do is hide. And the third thing you do is blame. And boy, isn't that true? Think about anything that happens when something comes out with a politician. You have all these things, and just for once, you just want to go, can you just stand up and go, I'm a wretched man. I'm so sorry. I was selfish, and it was all me. Nobody else. Like, don't you just, aren't you just drawn to people who can just accept responsibility? We haven't seen that happen yet. Now watch what happens next. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the servant deceived me, and I ate, right? So blame, we got covering up, then hiding, and now Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, just all sorts of broken. So all we're doing here is responding with these new brokenness going, I'm just going to hide, I'm going to cover up, and I'm going to blame. And just to be honest with you, that's our motive operandi now. That's still how we operate, right? And so watch what happens next. So the Lord God said to the serpent, and you're going, really, here it is again, this is so weird. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So there's actually consequences. There's weight to this that happens. There's consequences for behavior, and the first thing happens to the serpent. Now you go, this is really strange. You're like, ah, but a snake does crawl on its belly, but couldn't that just be folklore or myth? Here's one of the interesting things. I'm not trying to convince you of this, but it's a neat little trivia. Uh, 2016, University of Florida, which honestly means nothing to me because it's not a real school, but a, a researcher there, um, his name was Martin Cohn, did this really massive study. It was then published in 2016 in Current Biology, really uh, an academic journal. And here's what they found. So, so amazing. There are a number, number of fossil snakes with legs that have pinpointed the genetic process that caused snakes to lose their legs. So you have tons of fossils, uh, old fossils of snakes, snakes that used to have legs, okay? So very interesting there. And then, they, uh, then he said they have pinpointed the process that caused snakes to lose their um, legs. What's more, he said, the molecular machinery for leg development still persists in snakes after these millions of years. So literally, that molecular machinery is called... Um, I uh, actually can't, it's not coming up to my mind. Oh, it's a Sonic Hedgehog. It's so weird. These gaming people like it. It's a Sonic Hedgehog gene. And it says, this molecular machinery, it still exists for snakes today. And watch what he says. It just simply was switched off. Really? Really? Switch, see, like, so anyway, what it's worth, there's some interesting science for you. So that's what happens to the snake. And now watch this, verse 15. This is actually important. That stuff is it. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He'll crush your head and you will strike his heel. So he goes, okay, let me tell you something. Hey, evil one, serpent, Satan. What's going to happen is there's going to be a battle for the rest of life for authority and all that kind of stuff. And you're going to try to deceive forever. And there's going to be a battle between you and this woman and all of her offspring. That includes us. 
right? And he says a couple of things. Uh, and between your offspring and hers. He, that's talking about her offspring. This is the first picture of Jesus, by the way. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So there's a, 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 there's a theological term that shows up here. Depending on how you pronounce it and how it's written. It's protoevangelium or protoevangelium. And it literally means, evangelium means good news. This is the first good news. So this is the first time you see good news show up in all the scriptures. In terms of this is the first time you see a, a plan for what's going to happen. So this right here is where Jesus shows up. So what's going on here is God's going, hey, this is a mess. Hey, here's going to be some punishment for you, serpent. But here's what you got to know. I will send someone to fix this. There will be a Savior who will fix all this. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. So the way that I would describe that is imagine, I don't know, I hate snakes, but I'm playing in my backyard. And, or someone is, not me. I don't want to even imagine that. Um, so, and adults playing with their kids in the backyard, and this rattlesnake comes up and starts, like, biting. And this guy or gal comes in and saves the day and literally crushes the snake with, like, kills it. But in that moment that it, it kills, she or he kills the snake, it bites that person on the hill. And the poison kills the human being, right? He's going, that's kind of the picture here. You're going you're gonna to do a little bit of damage. You're going to do a little bit of damage. But uh, you're going to die. You know, the interesting thing is, even that picture we think of shows that, you know, he'll bite your heel or crush your heel or bruise your heel. That's a picture of Jesus on the cross. And guess what? He does die. Now, the most amazing part of the story in this, and we'll get to it in just a second, is that he comes back to life. So he goes, hey, snake, here's what's going to mean for you. There's going to be another. His name's going to be Jesus, and he's going to come through this offspring. This is really gracious of me. We're going to solve this problem, but not yet. And then he says this to the woman. He said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. That's true. With painful labor, you will be, uh, give birth to children. In the next part of this, it says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is a broken part of the verse, but you've got to understand it. That word uh, desire there doesn't mean a physical, physical attraction. That means a, an order or position. You'll desire to boss your husband around. So, ladies, it's really there in the scriptures. You'll desire to boss your husband around. It's really in that deal. And be annoyed by a lot of the decisions he's made. That's literally a curse of the fall, which makes me feel better at times. But here's the way that I'd show you. Um, think about any sitcom you've ever seen with a husband and a wife. The husband's always a doofus. And the wife always keeps it all together. That's always the case, right? The husband, just the big bumbling doofus, and the wife's the one who organized the whole thing. You even see it play out in, the, in you know, our entertainment stuff. Big doofus husband, right? And so it says, hey, there's going to be a couple things. As a result of this, you're going to be at war with each other. You're going to always be in that. You're going to be one flesh containing the same space, and you're going to be at odds with each other. And so if you've been married for a while, you understand this. There's not a single marriage out there that wouldn't go, yep, that's a complication for us, right? So there it is in the scriptures. So it says that, and then he says to Adam, verse 17, Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Your painful toil will eat food from it all the days of your life. Your job will be hard. You will sweat. Sometimes you'll stand in front of a couple hundred people and really sweat. You'll do some of those things that will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So you will work hard, and it will be hard work, period. Some days you will not like your job. Just won't. It's work. That's why it's called work. And then in Thessalonians, he says, a man who doesn't work doesn't eat. So you still have to do it, right? Um, By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So he goes, let me just show you a picture of the fall. You'll deal with dust forever. Your house will be dusty. You can go on vacation and come back, and dust will just accumulate, right? You, if you don't keep wiping your dishes, they'll end up with dust on them, right? Dust will be everywhere. Dust, dust, dust. Everything about your life, there'll be dust. And guess what? When you die, 
A bunch of it we dumped on top of you six feet in the ground. Just dust, dust everywhere. There is a broken part of this. And it says this, Adam named his wife Eve. This is really, really gracious. This is a gracious God, which means living because she would become the mother of all living. So God's going, no, 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 there's still a plan. There's still redemptive potential in this. And this is the last verse I want you to see. So important here. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So this whole messy pattern happened. They're hiding. They feel so much shame. They have these brand new needs. They didn't even understand they had. And God in his graciousness, right here in this moment, you see what he does? He sees a need they have. He sees a need. Oh, Adam, Eve, you're naked. You can't be naked. You've got to be covered because now you feel shame. And so what does God do? In the middle of all this stuff, seeing the ramification of the broken world, God in that moment, he meets the need. In other words, he starts a new pattern of attachment. Even when you see this in families, why foster care is so important, and even adoption is going, even if that was misplaced as a child, they're now finding that when you start meeting that need, when I hold my daughter and go, I'm with you. There's nothing that could ever stop me from loving you. There is nothing. I'm here. I will meet your needs. If daddy says he'll come back and get you, I will come back and get you. There's this new pattern, and what we see here, this whole detachment that happens, God, at the end of it, starts a new pattern of attachment. He goes, you have a need. It's a need as a result of your fall. A need as a result of the flaws in you that you need covering. And so I'm going to cover you. And what's really interesting is you see how he does it? He kills an animal. What did that animal do wrong? Nothing. That is an innocent animal. Did nothing wrong. The only reason it dies, the only reason it's dead is because of the sin of the world. So covering had to happen. And what we see here is a beautiful picture of what God does. He takes innocence and shed blood to cover the brokenness of our sin. Right? And so in this moment, it's small. It's minute. It's just a, a band-aid. He's going, I see a need. Let me meet that need. I see a need. Let me meet that need. But it's actually a bigger picture of, guess what? There will be more innocence. That'll be shed. And this is just a band-aid. This is just a bikini, right? This doesn't solve all the problems of the world. But there will be a day when all your shame will be before God and all of it will be covered by innocence being shed and being covered in human that will die on your behalf and cover you. What's so interesting is all this started with a piece of fruit hanging on a tree. What's interesting, if you read the scriptures, it talks about the resurrection, meaning that Jesus is actually going to defeat death. He's going to be struck in the hill, but he's going to come back to life. And what's that, that's referred to in the scriptures as the resurrection, the first fruits of resurrection, meaning this is what's available to all of us. You see this? He's even called the first fruit. So it's so amazing about this whole picture of God. He's such a good writer. And you go, really? Such a good writer. He literally takes a piece of fruit hanging on a tree that got us all into this mess, and how does he get us all out of it? He hangs another piece of fruit, the first fruit, on a tree. And God says to Adam and Eve, if you don't eat this, you'll enjoy life. And we mess it up. And then he says to Jesus, if you will do this, you will be crushed. But then they'll get to enjoy life. And so all of a sudden, in the end, when Jesus goes back to the cross, he goes, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. He's literally covering us of our nakedness. And he's hanging on a tree as the first fruit of resurrection. Then he dies and comes back to life and goes, see, this is what's available to you. And so that's what's offered to us. And so what he does here is he starts to meet our needs. And what's so amazing about this reconnection, this attachment, is it happens immediately. We just don't know it. It's like being adopted into a family. Like my daughter didn't know. Or, or when you adopt, they don't know immediately that you're not going anywhere, but you do. And the only way that you can help them firm that up is continue to do their same thing over and over again. They have a need, you meet it. They have a need, you meet it, right? And so Jesus actually says in Revelation 3.20, I want to share this with you, and the bands will come up and lead us in a song. And here's what, it, what he says. He literally goes, hey, hey, I know you have some needs. I know you're scared. 
and he gives a picture of how broken the church is and how flawed we are in Revelation chapter 3, and he's talking to this church, and he actually calls it lukewarm, saying, you're trying to solve all your problems yourself, and you can't. And he says this, but behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will open that door, I will come in, and I'll dine with them. I mean, I will enter. I will attach myself back to you, and that is a message of safety. And he's going, look, you have needs to be met. And you've tried to meet those needs in yourself, and that has not worked for you. So if you would just be so brave to open the door, just crack a little bit, let me come in and attach myself to you. And then you have a need, and I'll meet it. Then you have another need, and I'll meet it. And all of a sudden, we'll write this really broken relationship. And so what he's saying to us over and over again is, look, you can just trust me. You can surrender to me. You can stop being Lord of your life because you're not very good at it, and I can be Lord of your life. And we can, we can, we can reestablish this connection because here's the reality, and here's what he's saying to you. It's because you belong to him. And the minute you invite him back as Lord of your life, you belong to him. You are his. There's nothing you can do to separate you. There's nothing you can do to make him love you any less or more because it's not about your performance. He's coming into your life and he's going, no, 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 I'm going to reattach you. And you're going to have needs and I'm going to meet them. You're going to have needs and I'm going to meet them. And as that happens, you're going to be so confident in me as the Lord and the Savior of your life. And so it just makes sense that we'd start that understanding by kind of reminding us what he's saying. And so we're going to sing this song about what Jesus is saying, that we belong to him. So would you stand with me as we conclude in this song?